Now, here's a glimpse into the mind of a global technologist and visionary, someone who's given governments the power to get information in a meaningful way, someone who has thought of the business cases for Asian American empowerment, and someone who breaks down the steps to achieve that power. Interested? You'll want to stick around for this encore talk by Tim Huang, who spoke at the Imagine Talks annual symposium. Tim Huang is the founder and CEO of FiscalNote, a global technology and media company focused on delivering policy information in a complex and evolving world. Now, here is Tim Huang with what we can do starting now. Hey, Tim, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? Doing well and great to see you again. Thank you so much for joining us for Imagine Talks. And um, I'm especially excited to talk to you because of where we've been in 2020 and also essentially where you work, the crossroads intersection of technology and politics and also the fact that uh, you've overcome two major hurdles within that area to make that achievement being Asian and young, which are two things that you've also was able to like fight up your battle. So before I jump into some of my really nitty gritty questions, um, could you share a little bit about yourself with the audience and tell us a bit about uh, how you got started and basically the premise of Fiscal Note and, and how that became one of the, the creation you're working on right now? Yeah, well, happy to, uh, you know, give a little bit of background on myself and, and you know, certainly, you know, my, my family and whatnot. Um, so my, my family, my parents actually immigrated to the United States, um, uh, you know, in the 80s uh, from South Korea. And uh, my father was a physicist, my mother was a small business owner and um, really, you know, instilled in me kind of um, uh, the traditional values of, of, of being Asian American and, and obviously, you know, working hard and you know, uh, the end of that rainbow being obviously a stable career and, and a stable job and the like. Um, definitely basically threw that all, all out the window. Uh, <laughs> um, when I was uh, in middle school and high school, I got kind of uh, swept up in the world of politics. Um, you know, first started interning with my local congressman, uh, you know, was at the, the district attorney's office. And then um, my dream was to become actually a prosecutor, uh, you know, uh, in the United States and then kind of, you know, work pretty uh, closely in that regard. But um, I think that, um, you know, I kind of really got swept up into that kind of electoral politics. And so in 2007, ended up joining uh, the uh, uh, a presidential campaign, um, you know, back then was for Senator Obama, who was running mm -hmm. for, uh, you know, the White House. And um, lo and behold, obviously, that 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 campaign ended up turning pretty well. And so, um, about a year later, uh, when I was at the age of 17, decided that I was going to do something really crazy and run for office. Um, so I ran for uh, the Board of Education in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is the largest district in the state of Maryland. It's about a quarter of the state's population. Um, got elected, uh, served there, uh, managing roughly, call it, you know, 22,000 teachers, uh, $2.5 billion taxpayer budget, another $4 billion kind of capital improvement budget and the like. And, um, really got a rough and tumble into kind of the world of, of politics from a very early age. Um, obviously, it wasn't 
super, uh, uh, you know, aligned with what my parents were thinking and they were really pushing me hard to go back to school. And so um, ended up going to Princeton to study public policy and computer science. Um, and then was starting over um, at Harvard to start my MBA, uh, but decided that I really wanted to go off and, and do something new. And, you know, while, while I was an undergrad, um, really got uh, kind of linked up in, into uh, the startup world, um, kind of the technology and startup world. And, um, you know, a lot of my friends were kind of, you know, going out to Silicon Valley or starting companies or really thinking about kind of how to leverage technology in a new and novel way. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, the, by the end of my undergraduate career, I realized that I really wanted to start a company, but um, I wasn't really sure uh, kind of what the product was going to be, what service we we're going to launch. Um, and I just fundamentally thought about what I was interested in. And I was obviously interested in politics. I was interested in law. I was interested in policy. And one of the biggest challenges that I'd seen when I was sitting in government or, you know, working around politics was um, just how inefficient things were mm. and uh, how much time people spend trying to track what other people are doing, right? So yeah. if you were in Congress, you spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, what the federal regulatory agencies are doing, what foreign governments are doing. If you are a regulator, you think a lot about, you know, what state governments are doing, uh, what city governments are doing. And so I felt like it was a very big opportunity to aggregate um, all of the actions of government. So um, the legislation, the regulations, the, the court cases, all the things that were kind of happening, um, you know, left and right. And then to be able to take that information and then build a software product that helps organizations basically monitor how laws and regulations are impacting their uh, industries or their customers or their constituents. Um, and so we moved that Silicon Valley, bootstrapped a couple thousand dollars, um, you know, something like, you know, $6,000 or something like that between summer savings. Um, and I really just started the company, you know, out of a Motel 6 room in 2013. Um, you know, we were coding, calling customers, pitching investors. And in 2014, we launched our product. Um, uh, and just aggressively grew the business from there. And so, you know, um, the company, you know, we moved our headquarters out from Silicon Valley to Washington, DC. Um, uh, you know, I would say end of 2013, kind of early 2014, um, and are now actually the largest uh, technology company headquartered in the District of Columbia. Mm -hmm. uh, we now service about 5,000 customers. Um, uh, you know, the, our customers range from uh, DOD, State Department, CIA, White House, every member of the House and the Senate, uh, half of the Fortune 100, uh, you know, major investment banks and you know financial institutions and law firms. Um, uh, we're kind of being able to build a fairly large um, B2B customer base to kind of help us continue to grow the business. Um, we've raised probably about you know 400 million or so in venture capital, um, and so mm. you know investors include folks like you know Mark Cuban, Jerry Yang, Steve mm. Case, NEA. Uh, the Economist Group, um, S&P Global, uh, you know, uh, and so on and so forth. And so um, really, we've been able to kind of continue to grow our business, uh, not just here domestically, but also internationally. Uh, we have offices uh, across Europe and Asia, um, you know, also across North America as well, where we're going to continue to expand our, our presence as well. So um, it's definitely been a, a really interesting experience, but you know, our mission as a company really hasn't changed that much from, you know, when we started the company, you know, seven years ago, and, and we're just continuing to kind of push forward on uh, what we want to accomplish here. So many questions, and yet I only have so little time with you. That's so <laughs> awesome. And gosh, such um, 
just such vision. Like I love the how you and so many people in in Silicon Valley and startups they don't realize the the most basic core formula that you just displayed, which was you must first understand a problem before you go out and try to create a solution, right? And you did that. You you really understood. It wasn't a technology based. It was an actual problem that existed um, in the in the in the ecosphere in in the ecosystem. And from there, you saw a technological solution from it. So that's awesome that you did that. Okay. So then this brings me to another question here. Um, 2020, craziest year that I've ever experienced, and I think probably true for many people on planet Earth right now. And it, it basically had huge shifts in how many of us globally, but definitely here in the States, how we view and connect politically and also how we shifted our use of technology as well too. Have you seen ripples of that affect fiscal note that's basically the cross-section of politics and technology? Yeah, I mean, you know, so, so at our fundamental level at our company, we sell information to our customers, right? So we, we, we help our customers understand what governments are doing. And so, um, you know, I, I've never seen a time where, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly young, but you know, I've never seen a time when people were so glued to their screens on what was, what the government was going to do. Not, yeah. not, not in 2008, you know, not even in 2001, right? Like really, I would say like, it, it's, it's so pervasive, like in people's lives, shutdowns and stimulus and, you know, um, all, all these different things that like, you know, lockdowns that, you know, impact people at a very day-to-day -day level. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the financial crash of 2008 was kind of, you know, that thing that's happening over on Wall Street and like, you know, 9-11 people were, you know, they're definitely scared for national security, but, you know, wasn't, wasn't for most people, they still went to work, you know, they thought, you know, about what, you know, what, what was going to happen and the like. And so I think that, um, you know, this is the first time when people really, you know, like at a, at a local town, city, county, state level, you know, were just tracking everything that the government was doing. And, um, that put an enormous amount of pressure, you know, certainly on our company, um, to be able to continue to deliver information for our customers. You know, if you are a restaurant owner or nonprofit, you know, seeking, um, uh, mm -hmm. stimulus or, uh, tax credits or, um, I'm trying to understand lockdowns and, you know, what, what you're capable or not capable of doing, you know, really that, that, um, that critical information was, I think, very necessary, but separate and apart from that, um, I think the technology sector very broadly saw um, a lot of um, very, very interesting uh, uh, kind of trends that really accelerated over the course of the last couple of years, right? So um, digital transformation of enterprise is something that people talk a lot about. You know, um, how, uh, for the last 40 years, people have been talking about, you know, moving from, uh, you know, paper and pencil, you know, spreadsheets to, um, you know, kind of cloud-based tools and workflows and collaboration capabilities and the like. You know, uh, you know, video calls and, and whatnot. I remember it doesn't seem that long ago, but you know, 18, 24 months ago, especially in more emerging markets um, or different different sectors uh, like manufacturing or oil and gas or banking, um, you know, people just didn't feel comfortable doing business um, online, right? So they, you know, it had to be face to face, and you had to fly there, get on a plane, and actually do business. Sign um, paper, <laughs> right? Sign sign the physical paper, or like you know, shake the hand, you know, and yeah. so. Um, 
I think that's fundamentally changed now. I mean, people can raise billions of dollars in capital, close multi-million dollar customer deals, and they can do it all over, you know, Zoom or Google Hangouts. Um, and so um, I think that that plays significantly to technology companies um, like ours, you know, who, uh, you know, in addition to selling information, we, we sell a lot of workflow. Um, so collaboration tools and, you know, chat tools and those types of things specifically for lawyers. Um, and uh, overall, I would say that that, transformation, digital transformation has accelerated quite aggressively. Um, and, you know, the companies, uh, um, I remember something that my mentor told me, um, uh, uh, cause I wasn't working obviously back then, but, you know, during the, the dot-com era, um, you know, a lot of corporate executives were kind of divided between, you know, um, should we lean into the internet or is the internet just kind of a fad? And ultimately what happened was, yes, there was a dot-com bust, but for all the executives that had the, the vision and the foresight to actually lean into the internet, those are the, those are the ones that actually got promoted. You know, those are the ones that, um, uh, that, you know, kind of have that visionary leadership into the future and, and all the ones that were kind of, um, more antagonistic about the internet, you know, obviously were kind of shoved aside. Right. So yeah. I think that, um, you know, this era around, um, enterprise cloud, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence driven, um, you know, technologies, uh, you know, it's only going to continue to accelerate. Um, and that's something that obviously we're, we're continuing to watch here. Okay. Fantastic. Yeah. I am. I was just so curious about like the impact from, from both Politico and also of technology and, and that all, all, all that totally made sense. And it's amazing that in this crisis, you just showed that if you're in the right space, um, not only are you not like now wondering where your next dollars come from, you're actually raising amazing amounts of capital because you're you're now aligned with the whole global trend right now. Okay, so then the next question I have for you is, you did mention one of the interviews that I I saw of you that one of the biggest challenges you had when you were first starting this was your demographic you had to work against, right? Of being both a young person and also being an Asian American. Now. There were some not so pretty issues that were brought up about the Asian community during this year. They're strongly connected to, to the, the whole viral outbreak. Do you think that has made it even tougher and harder now to be from this demographic and to start a business because of that incidence now that has happened? I think that, um, you know, to a certain extent, then Asian Americans have always been viewed as um, uh, outsiders, right? You know, right. you know, they're separate. I would say separate. They have separate set of issues from kind of European immigrants, um, uh, largely because of the the, the, the stark contrast in, in appearance. Yeah. Um, I guess I have a couple of thoughts on it. Number number one, I, I don't think that COVID was. I mean, I think COVID um, was one of the factors, but I think that. Um, anti-Chinese anti sentiment um, is very, very strong in the United States, um, uh, politically, economically, um, you know, financially, culturally, um, philosophically. And, and um, you know, I think for people to really understand it, they need to understand, you know, the analogous that I, analogy that I would probably put, put you know, forth is, um, uh, you know, how maybe Russian Americans felt during the Cold War um, and I think that, um, you know, Chinese Americans, many of them, um, in particular, Chinese Americans have been around for, you know, many, many generations. 
um, uh, in the United States. And, uh, you know, the challenge I think is that right now we're at a very, very heightened time, um, you know, between US and China uh, in terms of political relations. Um, we're in the middle of a, a pretty stark trade war. Um, uh, you know, we have some very significant challenges and differences of opinion in terms of political philosophy. Um, there's a massive geopolitical tic-tac-toe game, you know, being played um, across uh, the emerging markets. Um, and there's just a fundamentally level of distrust. Now, COVID obviously didn't help. Um, and obviously the political rhetoric around COVID also did not help. Um, but, you know, the, the tinderbox, you know, was already there um, and COVID was really just the match. Um, and so um, it's not to say that, you know, it's going to be difficult for Asian Americans. I think it's always been difficult for Asian Americans. Um, but I think that in particular, um, you know, in the midst of, of politically sensitive time periods, it's going to be very, very challenging to kind of navigate around, around those, um, uh, those issues. Um, now the flip side of that is that that's obviously the pessimistic perspective, right? Um, uh, the, the opposite of that is that the center of, global economic activity is shifting to Asia. Um, you know, it's shifting to, um, you know, China, to Japan, to Korea, Singapore, Southeast Asia. Uh, I think that most of corporate America knows, almost all the corporate America knows that if you want to grow um, your business, if you're Johnson and Johnson or 3M or McDonald's or whatever it is, um, they know that the growth is going to come from, you know, Indonesia, from, you know, greater China, from, you know, Korea, whatever the case is. Um, and so their executives, um, you know, need to be much more aware about um, kind of Asian culture and sentiment. And actually, I think that Asian Americans have a very significant role to play bridging the gap between uh, East and West uh, in terms of um, helping American businesses expand into Asia and then helping Asian businesses hmm. think about, um, you know, how to deal with American uh, kind of financial markets and, and economic markets and the like. And so it's this kind of dual-sided coin where, you know, on one side of the coin, you know, there's uh, a very antagonistic view and the other side, you know, you just, you need each other to grow, um, you know, particularly in a much more globally connected kind of uh, system. And so um, uh, it's a very, very interesting dynamic, but I mean, there is a role that I think that Asian Americans can play here uh, to kind of facilitate uh, uh, the growth of the kind of global market and whatnot. Okay. Well, we're only a few more minutes and that that automatically leads to the perfect question I want to ask in closing here then is what can we as Asian Americans do to hopefully promote the optimistic view that you you shared where um, we can actually promote more connection more partnership I suppose obviously there always going to be competition but there's also no reason why part of that can't be a healthy competition and any and a productive partnership. What can we here stateside as Asian Americans do to help move it toward the flip side of the coin, the second scenario that you described, which I hope we can do as, as an entire Asian American community moving forward in 2021 onward. So I think that there's um, uh, four things, I guess, right? So um, uh, I think that we need to facilitate um, kind of an Asian American identity. Mm. Um, and that identity I think is fostered through three primary things, right? So number one is I think we need to support Asian American entrepreneurship. Um, why? Because entrepreneurship is the 
foundational aspect of wealth creation in American society. If you want to get wealthy, you have to start a business. Um, you have to own the business. Um, and, you know, the fundamentals of that is, you know, you've got to basically, you know, start a company or be involved in starting companies, whether it's as an investor or, you know, or, or whatever the case is, right? Um, that kind of um, fundamental kind of wealth creation should feed into uh, the second thing, which is, I think, political representation um, and, you know, creating a pipeline of political candidates um, that can advocate on behalf of Asian Americans, you know, mm. the resource that Asian Americans need and get, you know, the representation they need in Congress and state legislatures and city houses and the like. Um, the third thing I think is um, media um, ownership and representation, I think is obviously very important because it changes the perception of Asian Americans in mainstream society um, and uh, offers a, an alternative narrative, um, you know, to, you know, what things that are being presented, I think, you know, uh, in, in more pessimistic corners of society. So those are, those are the three main things I think to foster Asian American identity. Um, and the fourth thing I would, I would mention is, um, you know, leaning into Asian culture. And I know that, um, you know, particularly for second, third, fourth, fifth generation um, in Asian Americans, you know, I'm, I'm a second generation, um, that it's very difficult to kind of lean into that culture. Um, you know, it's, you know, many, many second, third, fourth generations, you know, have a hard time speaking the language or understanding the culture or the traditions and whatnot. Um, but I think that's a significant advantage into what I was talking about before, right? If you can speak the language of commerce, you know, in the markets where, um, you know, the global markets are growing very quickly, um, you know, if you can speak Mandarin and, you know, McDonald's says, you know, we're going to have, um, you know, a big, uh, investment and push into the, you know, the greater China market, that's a significant advantage, you know, for Asian Americans to be able to, uh, to play in, in the corporate landscape, right? You know, if you, um, you know, understand and can speak Indonesian, you know, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a huge priority from, you know, an investment bank to start setting up offices across Indonesia. I mean, you know, that, that's, you can be right at the forefront of connecting, um, you know, corporate America to the rest of the world, particularly in Asia. Um, and, um, leaning into those cultures and customs and languages, I think, is something that um, uh, uh, you know a lot of other cultures have done. You know, particularly as they've tried to expand um, their economic imprint, and it's something that I think is a very unique opportunity for Asian Americans to present itself here. Well, I love that. I I think I'm going to make that one of my own personal mantras, but I love it. It's it's really celebrating entrepreneurship, uh, really celebrating and promoting political representation. Um, really pushing for much more visible and positive media uh, presentation and celebrating and understanding and embracing and utilizing your cultural heritage. Wow. Yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> no, no, that, that's all you. Uh, Tim, always, always, always such a pleasure to listen to you talk. So much wisdom. Um, we come, I'm so sad we came to the end of this interview because I have so many more questions. I hope I can get you for another interview uh, sometime in 2021 or 22. You're so full of knowledge, so much, so much fun uh, and wisdom to, to glean from you. But um, I am going to have to say goodbye to you at this point. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, your wisdom, and your advice. And uh, I look forward to seeing you at the next Imagine Talks when we actually hopefully can meet in person. Yeah, no, absolutely. I really appreciate you having me on here. Likewise, you take care. Thank you again so much. Thanks a lot.
Thanks for joining us for this episode with Tim Huang's encore presentation from Imagine Talks. To learn more about Imagine Talks, go to www.imagintalks.org. Edge Interns and Mental Power Hacks supports this podcast. Edge Interns sources the best interns to the best companies. Learn more at edge. That's edgeinterns.com. And Mental Power Hacks is where you'll get life hacks to boost your mental performance, productivity, and success. Connect at mentalpowerhacks.com and subscribe to us and get the latest episodes of Imagine Talks podcast, Achieving Success, Social Impact, and Overcoming Obstacles. See you next episode.